Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I'm joined today by John Dugan, the Chief Operating Officer of the Concord Group. The Concord Group is headquartered in Chicago with six other offices in the U.S., including Milwaukee. They provide many value-add and cost-saving construction services to owners. Their services include things like project management, budgeting, scheduling, risk management, sustainability, commissioning, quality assurance, and accountability. So essentially, they ensure that our capital projects and programs are run effectively and efficiently with an eye on the bottom line. The Concord Group has worked with some significant higher ed projects, including the Hub of Collaborative Medicine and the Cancer Research Building, both of which are part of the Medical College of Wisconsin. Welcome, John. Good morning, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you here today. This topic is huge, right? Capital projects are giant expenses for colleges. I recently did a podcast episode on the cost of brick and mortar. And wow, I had to pick my job off the ground hearing some of the prices of what it takes to build today. It can take years, substantial resources to see a project through. Fundraising and internal funding mechanisms tend to be kind of our go-to for building projects. But John, you have some creative ideas to share with us today on how to fund these capital projects beyond the usual go-tos. So when you and I spoke previously, John, you shared this concept of monetization of existing assets to fund capital projects. Walk our listeners through this concept. Tell us what it is and how it can help a college bring money to the table for financing. Yeah, a lot of colleges and universities have assets that they, that they don't realize that they can actually monetize. And if they don't look at them that way, they can end up actually being liabilities. There's been some examples in this country, but also nationally, of monetization of assets. And when I say that, it's really central utility plants and parking, or instead of just talking about monetization of parking, it's really a mobility solution for campus-wide operations. So tell us a little bit more about that. Like, what does a college do? So say they have some utilities and some parking that they could potentially monetize. What does that look like? How do they go about this? You can look at your options. I mean, it comes down to doing studies to see the extent of the value of, of your assets. If you look at parking, for example, if you just charge $1 per turn and bring in a professional operator that will operate and maintain that asset, it can actually be very fruitful and very lucrative for that entity, the college, the university, over a period of a 30 to 50 year basis. What ends up happening, and some of the misconception about this is that they're actually, these entities are giving away their assets. They remain in full control of them, but again, they're giving up the operation, the maintenance, and at the end of the term, they get back their assets deferred maintenance free. Well, this almost sounds too good to be true, right? You know, it's almost like, okay, you'd be leaving money on the table to not do this. Why do you think some schools might not take advantage of this? Well, particularly here in Wisconsin, parking isn't always a good option because we don't like to pay for parking. But if you go into other areas, downtown areas, Chicago, you know, Houston's, Atlanta's, where it is common to pay for parking, then this can be a lucrative op- 
option. Also, I think there's the fear of going against the norm, swimming against the stream, doing something that hasn't been done before, and the fear of failure and what that could mean. Fortunately, in leadership positions in uh, higher education, the life term can be pretty short. So in order to go above and beyond and stick your neck out to do something different could be problematic. Well, I relate to that idea, right? You have to change your mindset before you can really do a new type of funding or funding mechanism. And I definitely relate to the idea of not wanting to pay for parking. I am born and raised in Wisconsin, so of course I drive around the block 20, 30 times before then I shell out the $8 and then I'm mad the rest of the day that I paid my $8. Well, that's funny. When this, when this concept first came to us, and somebody introduced this to me about monetization parking, my response, but, and forgive me, I'm obviously not from Wisconsin, but I said, Wisconsinites would rather walk five blocks in deep snow than to pay $2 for a parking space. Yeah, of course. And it's your own fault if you didn't bring boots and a yeah. hat and a shovel to shovel out your car afterward. Yeah. yeah, it's your own fault. Okay, so then that would be like the parking side of it. Tell us about more of the utilities. Does it work the same way? Because it almost sounds like a version of outsourcing. Uh, it is. The entity retains the ownership of the asset. What you're doing is you're partnering with a private firm to come in and operate and, and, and maintain. So instead of that central utility plant being a liability, if it goes down, it now becomes an asset because you're actually getting money for it. We've looked at a couple of projects, both in the higher education and in the healthcare market over the last 12 months, because of what's been happening over the past two or three years with significant escalation, seeing 20 to 30% escalation year on year for the last two years, when entities have been looking at capital improvements or a capital plan, they've seen their capital stack shrink. It's actually stayed the same, but because their project costs have increased, now they were looking for ways to either reduce their scope or different ways to fill in their capital stack. If they had an existing central utility plan or if they were planning to build a new one for or an extension of because of this uh, additional capital program that, that they were going out, that would be a way to monetize that in order to uh, replenish that capital stack to get the, the full desired scope. Okay, so there's more to this than just, you know, first of all, changing the mindset, trying something new, knowing that it might not work. It also sounds like there might be some location differences. So schools and maybe more urban locations where parking and utilities might be more valuable or perceived as valuable. People or schools might be more inclined to say that could work for us. But maybe in rural areas or even suburban areas, would this work as well? I think for the parking particularly, but for central utility, I mean, you know, a 250,000 square foot facility in an urban location compared to a suburban location is still going to use the same utilities. So in that respect, I don't think location really matters for utilities. It is a different change of thinking to say we are going to outsource our utility operations, but we're going to get something back in return. And typically what happens is there is a stipend money that comes back that then that entity, the university, can then do whatever they want to do with it. There are some bad examples, which I won't mention, where the particular entity didn't do anything good with that. And there are some good examples here in this country where they did do fruitful things with that stipend of money. So then people could look and point to, this is why we gave up the operation and the profits of this central utility or of this parking. So if you take that stipend money and you put it towards mission, there are a lot of great examples where 
people can say this has been a good decision, a good investment. And you had mentioned that this is much more common outside the U.S. So tell me about like the U.K. and Canada and maybe some other areas. Are there any models that we can study, any schools that have figured this out and done a good job? You you kind of alluded to that. So tell us more about that. Yeah, so it's essentially a version of a P3, a public-private partnership, which do happen here in the States, particularly on big infrastructure projects. But it's very more, much more prevalent, like you say, you know, the UK and, and in Europe, where there is more of a 3P public-private uh, partnership model for a lot of projects, whether it's higher education, education, um, healthcare municipalities, even massive infrastructure like deep sea oil uh, drilling is done with a, with a P3 uh, delivery. In this country, it's a little less prevalent, but there are some good examples. What it can do is it can really help uh, speed to market. So we can get your assets or your new program project online quicker. Some good examples here, you know, the gold star for the parking always seems to be the Ohio State University where I forget how many years ago they decided they wanted to own but not operate and maintain their parking. They felt that wasn't their core business. So they went out to the, the, the financial market to look to monetize it. And they actually, I think it was about half a billion dollars they got as a stipend up front for a 30 to 40 year deal. Um, I'm sorry, did you say half a billion with a B? Half a billion, yes. Okay, so that's worthwhile. That's, that's, we all want that's, that kind of worthwhile. money. Yeah. And again, to the end user, the student, the teacher, the visitor that parks in those structures every day, what they get is they get a better product. You know, they get mobility. It feels more safe because they're appropriately lit. You know, the elevators work all the time because there's a professional operator that goes in there and manages that facility. Very much like in healthcare, for example, they would utilize a kind of the ways driving direction thing where you could actually sign up to something like that before you go to your appointment. So it could direct you to the nearest parking space, nearest to the entry door that you need to go into. So it improves your experience because as soon as you leave the house in the morning, that's when your experience starts for that healthcare visit or the visit or wherever you're going, whether it's to a higher education campus. It doesn't start when you enter the building. It starts from when you leave the house. I think that's such a good point. And I know I work at a university, which is suburban, and the students do talk about parking <laughs> regularly. Like, even though it's not really a problem on our campus, sure. the perception is that, oh, my gosh, I have to walk all the way to the parking structure. Do I feel safe walking in? And just the little kind of tidbits that you talked about, like, is it well lit? Is the elevator working? Do the gates open? Open when they should? Does there appear to be a safe presence or vibe to it? So I think that's really important, that user experience piece. So just to clarify, I kind of want to just make sure we understand, this isn't a bank loan. So even though we are receiving this stipend, we're getting money, it's not a bank loan. So can you clarify for our listeners just kind of how to make sure we understand that distinction? Yeah. So in this case, where there would just be a stipend payment up front, that then becomes the entity's money. So in the collective agreement that happens between the university, the college, and the operator, there is agreements in place about how much they can charge per space, how much they can increase their pricing over the term of the, um, over the, term of the deal, whether it be 30 or 50 years. Also within that deal, it talks about you know, how they invest in those parking structures in order to maintain them. And there may be that every two to three years, the 
university sits down with the operator and say, per our agreement, we have $10 million now to invest into your structures or parking lots. This is where we see the investment should go. Do you agree with that? So as long as the agreement is written up correctly, um, it's still a two-way street. The entity still has a say in how their assets, and again, want to clarify the point, it's still their assets. They retain ownership. The third party comes in to operate, maintain, and receive whatever profits that comes from that. So it's still a very kind of collective process between the two entities. And yeah, that stipend comes up front. So if they already have a bank loan against, you know, if they've got a a portfolio of three to five parking structures, maybe they still have a bank loan left on one of them. They can use that stipend to pay off that bank loan and then do whatever they want with the rest of it. Like I say, it typically is a better outcome if they use that money towards mission so people can actually physically see we got something for that investment rather than just dwindle it away on just operations. Right. And I think that's so important, right? If you're going to do something which is sort of significant, right? You're going to change how this works, right? How we operate our parking structures or our utilities infrastructure. You do. You want to see that say like, okay, now we're going to go build a newer, nicer building for something, or we're going to put it into an academic program or some infusion of cash into a very needed, as you mentioned, mission thing. So tell me about the role of politics and local government. Does that play a role in whether this gets done or not? Does that maybe become an obstacle or deterrent for some campuses to even think about this? Uh, Particularly public colleges, because you know, they, they have a different governance structure to, to private. Um, I mean, if I can relate it to some of the municipalities that we're working with, if you think, you know, a mayor or whoever's leading that community typically has a four-year term. So they need to have time to develop this, and they also need the political will of everybody else. So they need to have their common council on board. They need to have the constituents on board. So if you're approaching a municipality, say, uh, it, to a mayor that's in the middle of his t- his or her term, they may not feel comfortable until they get into the first year of their next term because then they have some runway to actually put some progress in place to push forward their mission before they get into their next election cycle. So it, it really does. And then, you know, the difference then between a public university, if you look at our Wisconsin system here, we have our different branches of the UW system and then also the leadership at the state level that has to be aligned. There's not just the local chancellor. There's also a real estate group with the UW system and then the state's politics as well. So there has to be alignment through all of that in order to change the way of doing things. Okay. So I'm hearing that we're going to earn this half a billion dollars, right? (laughs) Okay. So very complicated. So the timing is really important. Is that what I'm hearing you say, that there's maybe a window of opportunity for colleges to capitalize on this? Timing is always a big thing, but I don't think there's necessarily a window of opportunity. There are certain sweet spots along the way, and it is important to have that political alignment. If you don't, then you can be very much swimming upstream. And and then it goes down to the path of why do I want to put that on my shoulders when I'm really going against the norm, when no one's going to criticize me for doing it the way we've always done it even though there are significant benefits for doing it a different way. I think that's a really good point. Maybe we don't change because we haven't found that it's broken yet, right? right? 
even though we're leaving money on the table to maybe not explore this. But because there are some complications, particularly within the public school system and depending on your state, right, your state might be more friendly in certain ways or more flexible to try some new things versus other states where maybe just the the nature of the politics and the people who are leading that it just may not work out very well. But that's a great point. There are certain states that have had like project delivery reform where we have in the con- design and construction industry, we have a whole slew of different types of project delivery methods. There are certain states that, um, you know, here in the state of Wisconsin, if you're working on a public project, the default is design bit built, which is called the traditional way, which has its benefits, but it also takes the longest. In the state of Ohio, they actually have construction delivery reform where they look at each project and select a project delivery method based on the characteristics and challenges for each project, which is kind of why we have different delivery projects. So there does need to be, once you have that reform, it does give you the scope to be able to kind of think outside the box a little bit. I like that. Why do you think Ohio's sort of progressive in that way? Like, What makes them, I don't know, at the forefront of leading these kinds of project delivery reforms? You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and I don't think I should go down that road, but it kind of comes, I'm sure the lobbyists have a big part in that. Great. So it's important, I guess, the takeaway for our college leaders, it's important to know the nature of politics within your state if you're a public college, because that will really give you some insight into whether this is a feasible option for you. Or, as you said, you'll be swimming upstream and maybe it won't pay off. Okay, so we talked about the public school system. What about private colleges? Do you see any particular complications for the private schools or is it a little easier for them? Well, again, my experience with private schools is there's the school leadership, the president, the CEO, and their team, and then they rely on their board to direct them. So it's a little bit easier to have that alignment. There's a little bit more control there. There is definitely potentially an easier route to get some consensus and agreement with private schools. The only doubt, the which isn't a really a downside, public schools would benefit from it so much more because there is a speed to market approach with this project delivery that the public schools would benefit more, but the private, but there's still a lot of upside for private schools as well. Okay. So tell us about technology. What's the role of new technology in all this? Does it help guide us in how we accomplish these new funding mechanisms? Is it a hindrance? Tell us about the role of technology. Well, the, our industry design and construction is historically antiquated when it comes to technology. But we are improving. We do have a lot more collaborative technology out there, project delivery methods and project delivery systems that can really make us more collaborative. Again, with the traditional project delivery of design, bid, build, it's hard to be collaborative when you don't have all the key parties at the table at the beginning during design. What some of this P3 or alternative project delivery uh, methods allow us to do is because we can take away some of the red tape of the traditional delivery methods. Uh, It allows us to be able to bring on the key team members early, which we do a lot in the private world, in order to enhance collaboration so we can get the thoughts and the process and the insight from the the construction managers and their subcontractors to really kind of drive the way that we design and build the building. In the private world, this has happened an awful lot in recent years because of some of the supply chain issues that, that, that we've had. 
So instead of um, architects and engineers going off, I shouldn't say blindly, but blindly designing buildings, specking out different materials, and then it comes to actually building it in the field, and then we realize that there's a two to three year lead time on some of those items, getting the input from the subcontractors up front so we know what are readily available materials. It could change differently the way we, say, design roof structures away from petroleum products to some different products that might be manufactured here in, in the United States rather than relying on overseas production. So what I think I'm hearing you say, correct me if I'm wrong, is that technology allows enhanced communication between all the different stakeholders who are going to be moving forward on a project, as well as it's almost like it can predict or help forecast where some of the troubleshooting might come in. So if we're having materials, procurement issues and supply chain issues, maybe we can shrink that or kind of overcome it before it's a problem. Am I hearing you say that? Correct. It's about it's about uh, the collaboration, bringing the intellect together early so we can so we can just build and design smarter. And so over the course of your career, have you seen technology just sort of boom in this area to really help? Absolutely. Particularly in the last five years, technology is really trying to grip our industry, even though, like I say, we're extremely antiquated. If you look at other industries such as manufacturing, but we are trying to make large strides of taking manufacturing principles into the design and construction world. Um, a lot of prefabrication is being done off-site in controlled conditions. Um, and again, technology is really aiding that. And so is the collaboration that comes from uh, technology. I'm assuming that this technology comes with a price tag, though. It does. But there are a lot of uh, data out there that shows from an overall cost and time perspective that it can actually be a lot more cost efficient and effective by putting some of these measures into place. It's also the quality control as well, particularly here in the Midwest where we have a climate where our construction season is relatively short. The more that we can do inside in a controlled environment and then deliver to site and then construct, the better the quality of the product is, the better conditions there are for the workforce, et cetera, et cetera. So it just leads to a, a much better process and products at the end of the day. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm totally with you on that. Assume a college is able to monetize its existing assets to create some of this additional funding that we all would love to have. Say the college is now in the building phase, right? They figured out how to get the funding. Now they're in the building phase. We know that the building phase always seems to go beyond the intended timeline, right? It's supposed to be open by next summer, but really it's next fall or next winter. Do you have any tips for college leaders who are the leaders on this project? Do you have any tips for them to optimize the schedule for a building project and then ultimately save money during the construction phase? Uh, I have two pretty clear ones. Engage with a firm like ours, and you shouldn't have major construction overruns. But then there is a lot of truth to that. A lot of the times we don't set realistic schedules. We have dates that say we want it done by this date with no particular reason. Sometimes with colleges, there is a particular reason because we need it by the term start. But then everything has to get set up to uh, maintain that date. And then the other thing is a lot of owners, college, colleges, owners in general, it's making decisions. If you're not making effective and quick, smart decisions, it really delays the whole process. And again, that goes back to engaging an owner's rep firm or someone that you can have as your advocate, your third party advisor to really give you that impartial decision when there are big decisions that come up. 
it's important that you have options and you understand the pros and cons of each decision to be able to make decisions quickly. And whether that's you making that decision or having to put it up to your senior leadership or even the board, the more intelligence you can put around given those options, the more comfortable people are with making those decisions so it doesn't hinder the project schedule. Timing, 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 right? You have to be able to make your quick decisions with the information that you have available and you have to have a realistic timeline. I think that's so true in the college academic cycle. We do set our timeline yep. targets around term starts. We want it by fall. We, we open August 25th. We need it ready by August 22nd, right? And you guys are probably thinking, well, gosh, we really need another two, three months. So in other words, don't set yourself up to fail. And maybe the term starts can become, it's not an artificial deadline, but it's a constraint constraint that maybe isn't realistic. Well, I think it also goes back to if there does need to be a deadline, it's not just colleges that have those, you know, sports arenas, sports stadiums, uh, or other things that needs to be open by the start of the season. It's make sure that we understand what that date is to begin with and again look at the way we're going to deliver the project um is there a project delivery method out there that best gets us to that date Uh, because all projects have different constraints advantages disadvantages and it's about looking at those holistically and say which ones can i live with which ones can i live without the push and pull of the different levers so automatically say you know that uh, yes, I've got the right delivery method. I've got the right team on. I know when I've got to bring the right team on in order to maintain that date. When I did the episode on brick and mortar, I heard about how the change of leadership within the institution sometimes affects that timeline. Have you also seen that? Many times. Many times. Okay. <laughs> so, and of course you can't control that. And there's nothing to do about it. It's neutral, right? The, yeah. the change of leadership is neutral. Do you have any advice for maybe a new leader coming into a project that's half built or partially built? Well, it's interesting because that leader is often brought on because we want you to do this, right? So, and if the this, the thing is this new academic facility or this new department that we're going to be doing, they need to put their thumbprints on it or they need to accept what's happened whether it's maybe not so much the shell and core of the building, the exterior skin, but the way that's going to operate with inside collaboration spaces, the way the operation flow is going to be, that's all key to the way they feel that their thing, their operations, their departments need to run. And so it is important for them to kind of look at things because the senior leadership that brought them on, they want them to take ownership as well. It's unfortunate. It's just one of those things that we have to try and deal with. I've worked on a few projects where I've had leadership change three or four times in the course of a project. And, you know, to have to keep going back for operation changes, sometimes you're flipping back to what you did previously and then flipping back again. It is difficult, but there are ways to overcome that. And I think sometimes for that leadership to come in with an open mind, to listen to the project team particularly the architects to understand the path that we've gone down in order to come up with the layout and the selections that we've done to date and then also then to benchmark that against other similar type operations uh, within other colleges or, or universities to say this is why we have the product here because then that might ease their curiosity about why should i change this and and, and maybe accept more of a of a, the current design let's bring this full circle to the challenges, the pitfalls in monetization of existing assets. 
Are there any challenges or pitfalls you foresee in this besides the ones we talked about, the political timing and some of the other things? And are there any types of organizations where maybe this isn't going to work for them, just realistically? It might, they might not be good candidates for. Are there any variables to those particular types of organizations? So challenges, pitfalls, types of organizations where this just wouldn't work? I'm sure there are organizations where this wouldn't work, but I think it's more of a mindset thing. Outside of breaking the norm of safe with parking, that we don't charge parking, but now we are going to charge parking, I would still advise people to take a look at it because for a small charge, the actual stipend check could be a lot bigger than what you think. Plus, it could also look for the way your mobility works around the campus. It's not just parking. You know, you could have rideshare systems, you could have scooters, you could have motorized bikes to get you from one side of the campus to another. A lot of what's happening in these parking structures now is utilizing them when they're not being used. So what happens to those outside of term time? You know, there's a lot of dark kitchens. Amazon drones are looking for places to store their drones to charge them overnight. So there's a lot of different revenue streams that people can get. And that's why I say they have to start looking at these things as an asset because it can lead to different sources of of, of revenue. So just really look at this with uh, open eyes and just consult with someone about what are the options are. I think with the central utility side, there's not the mental constraints or on that I don't foresee as there is with the parking, because like I say, we're either used to paying for parking or, or we're not. We all recognize that we need to pay for utilities in order to fuel our buildings, in order to be able to move forward our mission. So what this isn't doing, you know, you're still paying for your utilities through the same way. You're just outsourcing the operation and the maintenance of that. Now you've got a third party coming in. They're not strict employees of the uh, institution, the entity, but they will operate the same way, providing you structure the agreement that way that way to begin with. But then there also comes strict KPIs with that, so key performance indicators. So whereas now if we lose air supply, you know, fresh air supply, air changes to some of our classrooms or lab spaces that may force us having to postpone a class or lose specimens. This way now there are KPIs that you can now back charge that private entity for that lack of service. So in some ways there are benefits and uh, there are challenges. But again, I think the key thing is it comes back to looking at, at your assets differently and then realizing you still maintain control and ownership of them. I love this topic. I think you're making me think about just creative ways that maybe higher ed hasn't explored or hasn't explored fully. Maybe it's being done in small pockets, as you mentioned, but as a widespread strategy, I mean, I haven't really heard hardly anything about this. So, and I'm still stuck on that half a billion dollars. So, you know, of course I like those big numbers. I I think as well, you know, a lot of central utility plants don't get talked about anyway. No, so, so it's not a very so, so interesting it, topic, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. So some of this does go 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 under the radar. It is happening. Uh, I believe on the MRMC campus, the Milwaukee Regional Medical Center, uh, which is the collage of you know, different entities, um, they did uh, monetize their steam and their chilled water supply, I believe. So it is happening. There were just a lot more opportunities out there for many institutions. You brought up another good point about when a college isn't in session. So 
that sometimes happens in summer or we're at a reduced capacity. Maybe we're not fully kind of shut down or anything. We still have some students might be living on campus. We might have some professional graduate programs in session or summer terms. But by and large, we often see sort of a lull during summer and even for a few weeks or a month in winter. How do we capitalize on that? You mentioned Amazon drones. This is the first time I'm hearing about that. So that's kind of exciting. Who else might be able to use it seasonally or on our off-peak times? Yeah, the, the Amazon drones is uh, probably more so when college is in session, Amazon lockers as well. So a delivery point for Amazon so they're not having to go around every dorm door. Also, um, again, maybe more so if you, say, have a 1,000 car parking structure, but you're only using it 50%. Uh, the concept of dark kitchens, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. But, I'm not. But again, you could take half a floor of a parking structure and make kitchens out of it. So your different brands of, of food could be in there working and deliver goods fr from there instead of using their storefront locations to, to do that. So again, it's just a case of using your asset to the maximum. Okay, that's the most creative thing I've heard in a while. Are you saying that we have kitchens and parking stalls? Absolutely. Why and this not? is being done? Well, I, I guess <laughs> you're right. Why not, Sarah? Change your mindset. I, yeah. I, I'm in my fixed mindset. I need to be in a growth mindset here. So literally, they like pop up kitchens? Yeah, well, we have food trucks. So food trucks, well, use that yeah, as I'm, a... I'm not sure. No, I mean, but you would obviously have to put infrastructure into them. Okay. Events, that type of thing, exhaust hoods. But yeah, you know, you've got square footage there that if you're not fully utilizing it, somebody may be interested. Okay, that's yeah. very interesting. That's news to me. Okay, as we're wrapping up here, John, share a little bit about your best advice for college leaders to operate a financially viable institution. You're a COO, so you know a lot about operations. Your best advice could be related to capital projects and funding things, or it could be related to anything in higher ed or operating something really effectively and efficiently? Yeah, well, I'd like to stick away from the operations side because I do think higher ed is is changing, right? And I'm not sure struggling, but looking to reinvent themselves, looking for different ways post-pandemic. And again, I think all industries have similar challenges, even though the outcomes are probably going to be different. Um, but certainly from a capital planning uh, standpoint, there is some institutions that we work for, you know, have very a good process of looking at different capital planning, looking at what they want to roll out and have a good, robust system of budgeting, scheduling, putting pro formas together to be able to do that. I think particularly in this day and age, we've, what we've witnessed over the last two or three years, again, with uh, supply chain issues and, uh, you know, crazy escalation, is really to make sure that you engage with professionals to understand what's going on outside of their immediate bubble when they're putting capital plans and, and budgets to potential projects down the road. I think a lot of organizations get themselves into trouble when, oh, let's just look at the last academic building that we did five years ago, and let's escalate that for maybe 3 to 5% per annum, or because there's been high escalation, maybe that's more of a 10 to 15%, which may be good for a thumbnail kind of a, a analysis of, of uh, what you need to do, but every market is very different. So it's not just supply chain, it's not just escalation, it's the uh, constraints on on uh, the labor pool as well what's going on in that 
what other projects are being currently planned. So for example here, well, we're just getting a lot right now because of the stimulus money that has come in to boost the economy. There's a lot of projects being done, which is great, but it's also having a constraint on the labor force, which is somewhat then driving up the cost of the projects as well. So it's very important to kind of to be able to get outside of your bubble and take a holistic look at the market when you are embarking on a capital program or capital plan. I think that's such valuable advice. The idea of like external pressures in the larger marketplace also affect higher ed. It's yeah. higher ed isn't immune to any of these. And so you really do need to do due diligence and research, you know, what is going on, labor trends, supply chain issues and all that. All right, John, you are such a great wealth of knowledge. I know some of our listeners are going to want to reach out to you. Where could they find you? You could get hold of me on our websites. You could call either our Chicago office or our Milwaukee office. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. No problem. Uh, and our Milwaukee office is 414-225-5305. All right, John, you've been so great. And I hope to bring you back for more episodes in the future. We got some big plans to continue these conversations on the podcast. So thank you again. Thank you for having me, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.